You're listening to the 14th and final episode of Season 2 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast goes into a strict Christian upbringing not working out, but is not an attack on faith. It's about trying to retain some connection to God despite everything. It's also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my life that occasioned the writing of a song from my concept album, Peter Gray Grows Up. I'll continue for the two of you. Episode 14, How Long? This episode is plenty long enough. That's because I've always had an abiding interest in evil. Not in doing it, but in how it's handled in fiction. That's what really interested me in the show Twin Peaks. I think it depicted evil really well. The sort I've encountered anyway. I think normally they get it wrong in TV and movies, and even in classic literature. They want to make it cool, so they steal traits from Jesus or God or something to spice it up a bit. I think evil, in and of itself, tends to be as Hannah Arendt found upon meeting the main Nazi responsible for planning and administrating the Holocaust, quite often banal, mundane, boring, everyday and depressing, disinterested, cold and dead, lacking flavor and color. A few all-too-special human beings have whatever it takes to enjoy hurting others and doing harm, but most people don't overtly enjoy evil or harm at all. They just look the other way, or in the words of Jesus, make sure they do it in the dark, so to speak, so they don't have to see what's happening properly, nor get caught doing it either. They're more likely to simply wish to reap the benefits of some illegality or injustice, or more commonly, to stay out of complication and trouble, rather than be forced to deal properly with something that's a bit bad. If you're into evil, friend of mine, you likely need meds, antipsychotics for preference. Most evil slips under the radar, though, because it's boring, very uncool. We were given quite the opposite impression growing up, though. There was all this talk about this song, or that rock group, or that movie, or that game, or that fictional character being something all the cool kids were into, and only we, spiritually insightful folk, realized the terrible evil, the terrible danger they were in to be meddling with something like that, dabbling in the occult. Really? Oh, totally satanic. Dark, eldritch, ancient, and mysteriously powerful. Really? Something that seeks to draw you in, but is far, far too dangerous to be trifled with. But some of us, growing up, met evil at church. Evil that would stab you in the back, but never swear. Evil that was smiling and wearing a tie. In my teens, I already agreed with Bill and Ted seeing hell for the first time. This is not what I expected this place to look like at all. Yeah, we got totally lied to by our album covers, man. I noted that what the Bible had to say about evil, and how it depicted it, and how pop culture and fundamentalists alike understood it in the 80s, seemed at odds. Some things. In fiction, evil is creative and filled with artistic and emotional expression. This was seen in every story from Goethe's Faust on forward through Crossroads, Devil Went Down to Georgia, and so on. In the Bible, though, God creates and destroys on a literally universal scale, while the devil only corrupts, dilutes, waters down, rots, infects, subverts, subverts, and generally messes up the things God and his people have made. But the devil has the best tunes, everyone told us. Amazing songwriter, fiddle player, dancer, novelist, and playwright, the devil, and those who sold their souls to him, apparently. Stunning dresser, too. Wears Prada, apparently. This made no sense. There's very little about angels in the Bible, 
But one thing that may surprise people to hear is that angels in the Bible are never depicted even once laughing, weeping, joking, smiling, scowling, making up songs or stories, drawing pictures, dreaming, playing harps, and certainly not singing. The angels in the Bible, translated with any attention to older languages at all, simply say things. They don't sing. There aren't choirs of them. Angels are messengers. They fight and they say things. When you saw one, either it had a brief message to deliver, or a whole bunch of people were about to suddenly get really dead. The citizens of Sodom were foolhardy enough to try to gang rape a pair of angels. This did not go well for them. It always amuses me when people look at that Bible passage and say, oh, I guess that God's trying to say that it's wrong to be gay. Well, maybe it's the tourist raping that's the main reprehensible behavior being presented there. Our feelings about homosexuality may have evolved over time, but to this day there's not a state in the Union where rape is legal, of angels or anybody else. One gets the impression that when God made human beings, the Bible does not intend us to think that for some reason he was making crappier angels, angels with no wings. In fact, it seems that angels were not created to be images, representations, models of God, and human beings, men and women, were. And in the few places in the Bible in which Satan, the devil, the serpent, or anything of that kind makes an appearance, there's not a lot of evidence for personality. Whether talking to Eve or Jesus, Satan appears coldly logical and tactically manipulative. He neither seeks to seduce nor intimidate. He uses words like an angel does, only a lying, unreliable messenger. The word test is often used, as in he's testing to see what people will believe and if they will disobey and despair or whether they will hold strong. Is Satan a piece of God's creation that's intended to do quality control on the bunch of us? Was Jesus being subjected to the same quality control the rest of us are before he was allowed to do anything else? But Satan, a creature bringing dubious ideas and interpretations out to see what will happen. In fact, Satan doesn't appear seductive and charming or scary. Every other angel that appears in the Bible has to say, Stand, Stand upon, upon thy feet, feet, or be not, not afraid. afraid. Satan doesn't need to say this because no one seems to be scared. Neither does he seem to be working terribly hard to be charming or warm or funny or anything of that kind. That seems to be stuff that's maybe a bit too human for him. I think the serene elves in Tolkien and space elf Vulcans of Star Trek are both attempts to depict creatures that are angelic, not quite human, maybe a bit better than human. And the lesson is always the same. Angels, elves, and Vulcans may live longer or be more wise or more powerful, but they have things to learn from human beings. Passion, humor, creativity, and personality in general, because they have less of that. Humans have more of that. And humans get it from their dad. God, the father of all creation, the one who put the passion into suns and the hunger into black holes. This is why I find it interesting that the most challenging thing almost anyone finds to try to believe in is a God they are going to generously allow to have a personality, let alone being the source of all personalities. The one whose personality our own endlessly creative, fairness, justice-obsessed, excellence-seeking, relationship-forming, oppression-outraged, beauty-appreciating, love-bestowing, and intimacy-seeking human nature is, to cite the ever-Platonic C.S. Lewis again, a mere shadow of. People don't quite want to allow a supreme creator being that. Oh, they believe in justice and karma and vague glowing nebulous energies or forces or powers or somethings in general, but a god with emotions 
an agenda, a God who created irony, humor, the absurd, the beautiful, the majestic, the unsettling, the deadly, the heart-stopping, the God who gave mandrels blue butts, who imagined kittens and cobras alike into being. Most don't want that, because the idea that could exist in psychology, a heart, a mind, an aesthetic, a sense of irony and humor that would be so much more colossal than their own, well, that's like training an ant to scale Mount Everest. But that's what believing in God and letting him be a person who isn't just a sneaky reflection of our own selves instead of the other way around is like, who made whom indeed. Even in movies and art depicting Jesus, great lengths are gone to to, to make sure he has muted or almost entirely lacking emotions, just a kind of stone, disengaged serenity. Because spiritual people don't grin or laugh. They definitely don't get anxious or angry. I've flat out had people tell me that Jesus never got even slightly impatient or annoyed because that would have been sin and clear evidence that he wasn't actually God or perfect. This despite everything the Bible says about Jesus. Sin was anything other than a peaceful, quiet, complacent going on with our wholesome church stuff we felt more comfortable believing. I'm pretty sure God has gone to great lengths in everything he has made, and even in the Bible too, to present himself as entirely other than humorless, serene, detached, absent, disengaged, watered-down, colorless, or blank. C.S. Lewis knew what he was doing when his Jesus line had to remind people that he is, after all, a lion, and not a tame one. The Bible says Satan wants to devour us like a lion might, but it also presents Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, Israel's own lion king. Can you feel the love tonight? Why use an apex predator as a symbol for God? Another thing that our 80s horror movies certainly taught us was that evil is powerful. Far more powerful than good, of course. In movies, good is an absent, heavenly light glowing angelically down when it's safe to do so, or a tired old priest with a cross held in trembling hands, while just any old demon or evil spirit can tear him to pieces, possess human beings, overthrowing their wills and control over themselves, and for some reason, working presumably pro nocer publico in hell, punishing sinners for sinning, because if there's anything devils hate, it's people who have sinned, makes them so mad they want to punish sinners for all eternity for their sinful sinning. None of this is in the Bible, and none of this makes any sense at all. Satan does not try to possess or hurt or even scare Eve, Jesus either. In the Bible entire, no holy symbols are held up to ward off the devil or an unclean spirit. No holy water is splashed around. No special words, no rituals are required, no circles are drawn. People we would view as mentally ill, having damaged, misfiring, weakened cognitive function, chemical balance, sense of proportion, sense of their relation to others around and general connection to reality, are seen in the Bible as being infected with demons, corrupting and rotting their sanity and hijacking their normal cognitive processes like a virus. That first century view of mental illness was a lot like ours, only with the idea that the dysfunctions and disorders are not just random or glitchy, but agenda-driven. And the agenda is to ruin what God intends in terms of how things are meant to work well, and ultimately to destroy his sensible, harmonious work. The demoniacs in the Bible are people we recognize as people with severe emotional problems. The demons that plague them consistently want to give them seizures. We still use that word, but are much less conscious of an external, malicious, intent seizing the bodies in question. 
In the Bible, they throw these poor people into fire to burn them, or off high places to kill them, or in water to drown them, or generally cause them to hurt themselves. In the Bible, unclean spirits infect you and make you want to hurt yourself. These devils are depicted as mental parasites, not omnipotent, all-knowing emperor gods of the sixth circle of the outermost dimension of evil, with eldritch flames for eyes, powerful legs made of molten bronze, a voice like Niagara Falls seated on high, on cyclopean thrones with a terrifying green glow coming off them, and bolts of lightning arcing out of them with deafening thunder, with a glowing face, seven suns held in one hand, and a sword firing out of their mouth every... Whoops, started slipping into the Bible description of, who was that again? Oh yeah, Jesus there in Revelation 1 and 2 Thessalonians 1. Devils aren't anything like that in the Bible. They don't get thrones or even goat-headed scepters or horns or tails or even bodies of their own at all. Not once. How boring. I get why they don't show up in movies in that form. In the Bible, they're whining, brattish, non-corporeal entities. Mere human apostles show up to preach in town, and people infected with these things are impelled by these things to try to heckle, and they get told to shut up. They're clearly threatened by newbie preachers. Before that, Jesus is described as impatient and frustrated when his disciples don't seem to be able to sort out some people bothered by these infections of their sanity. Given control of a person, demons in the Bible called unclean spirits, it being good to keep in mind that spirits in the Bible are attitudes, moods, mindsets, ideologies, and subpersonalities, they do not suddenly make the affected people into rock stars or almighty evil warlords or Hitler or slick salesmen for Satan or evil seductresses or wizards or all-powerful liches or anything of that kind. The unclean spirits make the people in the Bible into run-of-the-mill mentally ill people who run around in public naked and smeared with filth, shouting deranged, paranoid, combative things and engaging in cutting and other forms of self-harm, just like we have in our cities and on Twitter today. And in the one story, when Jesus tells these evil attitudes, moods, mindsets, ideologies, and subpersonalities they need to leave a guy alone whose emotional issues are legion, they want to go bother some pigs. That's all they dare shoot for. They do not, for example, forcibly possess Mary Magdalene and start her levitating and her head spinning around. They do not even make it cold or dramatically windy. Not a single candle is dramatically blown out. Given permission to bother the animals, they have an easier time with the pigs than they had with the man and get the pigs to run off the cliff into the sea, drowning themselves. They hadn't been able to make the man do that. Not the lot of them. Hitler was a false front. He was not a pillar of strength, a perfect Aryan specimen of health and sanity. He was 56, sickly, neurotic, delusional, paranoid, superstitious, and seems to have had Parkinson's disease and irritable bowel syndrome. He was propped up daily with regular dosing of amphetamines, barbiturates, opiates, and cocaine. He was one of the most evil men of the 20th century, a time when competition for that title was stiff, and it mostly came from how ill he was mentally and physically. Hitler was not evil because he was strong and healthy, and he was not made strong and healthier by being or doing evil. It was eating him, despite being a vegetarian who was the kind of non-smoker and teetotaler any Plymouth Brethren Assembly would hope for from its members. Brother Adolf, you see, was a fake. Not strong at all. Had to look that way in front of the cameras. Not able to sort himself out, let alone Europe. One thing he could do was attract people to him and foster the weakest and most twisted and darkest parts of them to come to the surface. 
Another thing 80s horror movies teach us that Hannah Arendt knew better than is the idea that evil is mainly somewhere else, trapped in some distant domain or dimension, safely away someplace, unable to get here without some bridging MacGuffin like a chalk circle, some cheap jewelry, saying Candyman in front of the bathroom mirror three times, or maybe something cardboard from Parker Brothers. In fact, for some completely inexplicable reason, not only did Dante Alighieri amuse himself in his Inferno section of the Divine Comedy by depicting some of his very much alive at the time least favorite humans as somehow being in his hell already, he also depicted Satan, Lucifer, the devil, as being in hell too, for some reason. Upside down, frozen in ice, arse end up in the middle of hell, in fact. Now that's just bizarre if you've read the Bible. The Bible predicts a far-off day at the end of things after the earth itself is gone when the devil will be cast for the first time ever into the lake of fire and outer darkness, presumably from going wherever he likes in the time leading up to that, wherever he likes. It does also speak of a thousand-year period in which he is bound in the abyss, but that's the only other time, and this is generally also understood to have not happened yet. And so for the rest of the Bible... He's chatting with Eve in the garden, talking to God in heaven about Job, making dubious offers to Jesus in Rome-occupied Israel. When Satan's in heaven, by the way, and God asks him where he's been like God doesn't already know, Satan tells him, walking to and fro upon the earth. Because in the Bible, that's where Satan always is, walking around on earth. And the Apostle Peter doesn't write, be sober, be vigilant, because if you use a Ouija board or listen to Slayer albums, your adversary, the devil, will be instantly loosed from his millennia-old imprisonment in a distant hell dimension and enter our own for the first time in all those thousands of years, coming into your bedroom and your nightgown-clad body alike, unless an ancient cast of Templar knight ninja monks led by a child known as the Chosen One can stop him. No. In fact, the apostle says... Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Walketh about, like right here, right now. And once you think about it, have you looked at the world lately? Ever checked out Twitter, let alone Reddit? It's not all glowing red eyes and black hoods, but it will eat your brain just the same. After the Second World War, Hannah Arendt flew to Europe and met uber-Nazi Adolf Eichmann before his execution, expecting a six-foot-tall, blonde, blue-eyed, steely Aryan death demon. He was a boring little balding pencil pusher who didn't really understand what was going on. He was just doing what he was told, the job he was hired to do. Hitler was good before, and he was bad now? Weird. In movies and TV, evil is corporate. I kind of like that, but I don't think it's quite right. They make it all about contracts and lawyers and sales departments. I'm going to go ahead and blame Virgil for that. The Virgil that Dante Alighieri liked so much that he wrote a fan fiction piece in which he and Virgil get to hang out and tell each other how cool they are. He called it the Divine Comedy, with the hell part being called Inferno. Teenagers in Italy read it in high school instead of Shakespeare. In medieval Italian. In the Old Testament, a collection of works written in an attempt to tell spiritual truth, to share wisdom... Satan isn't in hell, ever. In fact, there is no discussion of hell at all in the Old Testament anywhere. Hell isn't in anyone's heads yet. Like in the Old Testament, the ancient Greeks, like Homer, depicted the dead as losing their bodies, leaving whatever else they thought there was to human beings to go down underground somewhere and exist only in a shadow-like, not-entirely-there ghost form. A shadow of their former selves. 
In Homer's Odyssey, an epic poem written to entertain rather than teach theology, with Homer free to make up whatever he liked, Odysseus, like a few other random guys in ancient Greek myth, gets a quick visit to the afterlife in the middle of his life, without dying. And he comes back, too. Why do people need to sign contracts in their blood in stories? Homer, maybe. Goethe, definitely. The dead are all more or less in the same state and place in Homer, and they're not really themselves. Blood is life, and if Odysseus kills an animal and has some blood to offer, the shades use the blood to think and feel and speak with Odysseus as they would have were they still alive, with blood in them to do it. But there's no great afterlife care facility for personalized punishment and reward in Homer. For that, you need a Roman. In Virgil's Aeneid, an epic poem written to entertain with Virgil free to make up whatever he liked, suddenly one could imagine the underworld being pretty much the under-Rome. It has offices, departments, pretty much help desks and waiting rooms and signs telling you which line to wait in. As above when in Rome, so below in Virgil's imagination. And when Dante, a Catholic in Florence, Italy, not terribly far from Rome, Italy, imagined the afterlife during the Middle Ages, he built on that foundation from Virgil. Virgil is the Gandalf figure in Dante's work. In the English poet John Milton's Paradise Lost, an epic poem written to entertain with Milton free to make up whatever he liked, he creates a whole story in which he greatly elaborates on one interpretation of one part of the Old Testament, which depicts a possibly Satan figure getting cast out of heaven, which interpretation seems very at odds with the book of Job's depiction, and doesn't really properly tell the story behind this angelic eviction anyway. In Milton, then, Satan or Lucifer, Lucifer or Morningstar also being a title for Jesus in the Bible, to help make that one hard to parse neatly. In Milton, Lucifer is cast down to what becomes hell. He becomes the ruler of it, as he had been leader of a band of rebel angels based on a greatly elaborated upon telling of that very specific interpretation of that one specific part of the Bible that doesn't tell the story and comes up to bedevil Eve. When Johann Wolfgang von Goethe wrote Faust, a play written to entertain, not teach us stuff, with Goethe free to make up whatever he liked a century later, with a keen interest in Dante's Italy, eventually taking a trip to see it in person, he depicts a hell with the devil installed in it as a head administrator or CEO of the facility, and a contract or agreement being signed in blood between Dr. Faust and Mephistopheles, a demonic agent of Satan, either invented by Goethe or co-opted and fleshed out by him from Germanic folktales, there being no demons and only two angels named in the entire Bible. I am named after one of them. The Faust's idea is taken largely from the story of Job in the Old Testament, an ancient book written in an attempt to tell spiritual truth and share wisdom, in which Satan, walking around on earth as he does in heaven, not stuck in or ruling in hell, kind of makes a bet with God that he can make Job curse him. Neither Satan nor any emissary of his ever talked to Job. Job is not approached with a contract of any kind, and at the end of the story, God himself speaks with Job rather than some kind of demonic emissary. In Faust, though, Satan is in hell, ruling it as he is in Milton, to the point of sending Mephistopheles up to get Faust to sign a contract in his own blood to serve Satan if Satan gives Faust everything he wants in his life which contract seems most like the agreement Jesus refuses to make with Satan, who wants Jesus to worship him if he will give Jesus food and power and things. There is no story in the Bible in which someone makes an agreement with Satan and is actually given anything at all by him. Jesus turns Satan down, and the fruit Eve takes, she takes herself from a tree God put in their garden and told her not to take. 
No one in the Bible agrees to serve Satan or an unclean spirit and get superpowers, rule over the whole world, or the ability to play devilishly good blues guitar. In the Bible, just as there are no bargains struck with Satan, there's no discussion of being able to sell your soul somehow either. What would Satan do with souls anyway? Satan seems to want to derail God's order and plans. Evil spirits seem to want to do damage to and eventually destroy people's minds, bodies, and lives. There is no discussion of people being indwelt by evil spirits because they were doing magic at a school for wizards or because they gained some benefit from some infernal bargain. It seems more like getting AIDS or veganism. Normal, healthy, God-intended processes and structures and harmonies are subverted and corrupted until nothing works right. In short, there's nothing in the Bible at all that suggests that making deals with the devil makes you creative, strong, and effective. You get sick, mostly mentally, and you die. There's no suggestion that the devil has some interest and now has some claim on your soul either. Corruption and annihilation seem to be the only goal. There seems to be some indication in the Bible that redeemed souls are saved, more in the sense of Microsoft Word documents, and less like drowning men at sea. The discussion of afterlife of hell first joins the Bible in the New Testament with Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Nazareth, and all the rest under the military and political rule of Virgil's Rome, or at least a Rome which had been reading Virgil's bureaucratic vision of hell for 40 or 50 years at that point. Then, eventually, Rome installs a pope, gives him a tall hat, and makes their bureaucratic vision of Christianity the law of the Roman Empire. If you get certain points of doctrine wrong, you are tortured by church leaders until you get more enlightened. As a kid, my mom used to often take me to the public library to borrow stacks and stacks and stacks of books, remember, no TV, and sometimes take part in children's events that went on there. One time, when I was about six, I saw a puppet show based on the 1936 short story The Devil and Daniel Webster. I didn't know that it had been written shortly after both Robert and Tommy Johnson had been answering the question, How in tarnation did you learn to play the guitar like that, boy? With a simple story. They claimed to have met the devil at the crossroads at midnight and sold their soul to him to learn to play the blues. This seems to have been most likely cribbed second or third hand from Goethe's Faust. I was fascinated to see a puppet representing the devil. I'd heard all about the devil at Sunday school and meeting. More than about Jesus, in fact, if the truth be told. I'd heard more about the corrupt human heart and how he sinned than about the love of God, which only entered our story as a solution to that problem toward the end. But we were always to be very reverent about hell and the devil. No light-hearted cartoons of Satan for us. Entirely verboten. Satan was serious stuff. So, at the Smith Falls Public Library, on the second floor, sitting on the gray, rubbery-smelling carpet, little me was terribly confused. First of all, Mr. Scratch, who is the devil, appears to be living comfortably in hell. And like hot stuff, the little devil in the Harvey comics with Casper, Wendy, and Richie Rich, Mr. Scratch was not on Earth one day in the future to be bound in the abyss and eventually banished to the lake of fire for eternal torment, as the story goes in the Bible, but rather quite comfortable in hell now. And hell was a fantasy setting like Narnia or Smurfland. Devils lived there and were red and loved fire. It didn't burn them at all. And Mr. Scratch wasn't bound there, but free to come up to earth and do deals with people. And you could sell your soul, I wondered. That didn't make any sense, I thought. And why did Satan want souls? It sounded like devils punished sinners in hell. Why on earth would they do that, I wondered. Didn't Satan try to make us sin? And in the story, regular human people seemed able to beat the devil 
purely by virtue of being American. As Toby Keith later sang, Daniel Webster, in the story, puts a boot in Mr. Scratch's ass, because it's the American way. This vision of America was that there was no place in it for the devil. None at all. They'd kicked him out with the redcoats. Their constitution, their independence from foreign powers, not to mention their willingness to give you a boot in the ass, guaranteed them safety from evil. That also all seemed very odd to us up here in Canada. Wasn't America in the news all the time for really amazingly bad stuff happening there? If that wasn't the devil making himself very at home down there, who exactly was doing all this stuff? The Vietnam War was in the news every day, although we had no television. The crazy part of it for me was that as I grew up, I saw this mysterious, contradictory, nothing-to-do-with-the-Bible story about hell and the devil everywhere. In comics, movies, TV, and in album cover art, this seemed to pass for theology. Devils and evil safely in hell so long as you didn't invite it into America or mess around with Ouija boards or sign contracts in blood to learn how to play the blues better than Steve Vai. Also, human beings somehow became angels when they died? That doesn't make any sense. And not terrifying, powerful combat messenger beings, God's police soldiers, but rather deeply annoying cream cheese-eating middle-aged women in white dresses with George Burns walking around in the clouds. Everyone and everything gleamingly white. And we knew what evil stuff looked like. It was black or red and pointy. I designed a fairly BC-rich warlock-looking guitar on paper one time and was showing it to someone at a Brethren Youth Group event, and Caleb's mom asked me what it was. She couldn't tell by looking at it. I said it was my design for the dark mirrored double humbucker equipped guitar, of course. She said, but it looks like the devil. It was impractically angular and pointy, even more so than the BC rich warlock I now play. It never occurred to me that the devil might look like a fairly typically shaped goth metal shredding guitar. Striper's guitars were pointy too, and they said to hell with the devil. <laughs> Twin Peaks. Now, Twin Peaks was interesting. Twin Peaks wasn't only about this, but the TV show expanded into a faux diary creepily enough written by showrunner David Lynch's daughter, depicted a kind of life ruination any Plymouth Brethren person would relate to. Laura Palmer is the prom queen. She's sweet, beautiful, and kind. She does charity work. But there's a dark side. She's the victim of abuse, and the abuser appears to be under the influence of an unclean spirit that is driving him insane, which corrupting insanity spreads to everyone in his life, it having started with abuse in his own childhood. There is no contract signed in blood, no supernatural powers or privileges or benefits bargained for. Evil is like a parasite a family gets infected with. All the things the Plymouth Brethren would disapprove of and feel they understood start showing up in Laura Palmer's life. She lives that double life, one half of which meets everyone's expectations perfectly, including helping everyone. The other half is self-destructive and corruptive of others. Not only is she promiscuous and unfaithful to boys who want her to be their girlfriend, she gets drawn into pornography and possibly prostitution, using and selling drugs and drawing other young people into her corrupted life and its habits. A central image of Twin Peaks is fire. Evil, as something that attracts the eye, as something one knows is dangerous and will consume one, but which one is drawn to like a moth when everyone who is more healthy, less empty, less broken will have nothing to do with it. 
when for them, warning signs are going off all over, but for you, you can't stop pursuing that line of self-destruction. Laura Palmer is drawn to destruction when her life could be as perfect as it looks to anyone looking on, and she herself becomes like a fire, drawing others in, especially if they bring brokenness and woundedness with them. A key phrase in Twin Peaks besides who killed Laura Palmer, spoiler, the story starts with Laura dead, and then goes looking into exactly how that happened, but in 90s style, it's about subverting expectations and simple answers. The other catchphrase of Twin Peaks is fire, walk with me. There are no contracts signed, but in the world of Twin Peaks, some people are broken and wounded, and they invite destruction. They walk with it. They offer themselves to be consumed by it. They do whatever it takes to be hurt over and over. They make that happen. They attract others to follow them into that broken place without needing to be hired or possessed or anything like that. Because in real life and on TV, sometimes that's just how people are. I got heavily into Twin Peaks just when I started pursuing inclusion in the Vetter group in Pennsylvania and bringing all my friends down to meet them. In fact, I picked an episode of Twin Peaks up on VHS tape at the Carousel Shopping Mall in Syracuse, New York, while driving down there one time. My own life story, and the story of the various people connected with it, is complex, but one of the themes in it certainly is self-destruction. I didn't seek self-destruction, but I certainly seemed drawn to people who increasingly went in that direction. I thought I needed more than anything else to get freed from involvement in and time spent under cultish influences, but I seemed to have grown up with a vulnerability to them, a lack of alarm bells going off about them, maybe even an attraction to or feeling of comfort in cultish control systems and influences and the people attached to them. There doesn't really seem to be any real reason why no longer living a life bounded on every side by the expectations of church people who need you to self-destruct means you end up bringing about your own destruction yourself. Yet that seems to happen sometimes. Doug and Mark could have been anything, but now there's little left of them and nothing corporeal left of Doug that's not buried in the grave in East Harrisburg Cemetery. We all went and visited Doug's grave a year after his death. Nathan poked a hole with a finger in the grass right above where Doug's mouth might be and poked a cigarette butt end first in the shallow dent and lit it, then Riley smoked one of his own with Doug, one of our female friends having passed out on Doug's grave entirely. Nathan has twinkly eyes like David Crosby, and they can look very mischievous and very sad all at the same time. When he smoked his cigarette with Doug, his eyes looked very both of those things. Mark made me sing Maybe Someday that day. I didn't want to, but I got my guitar out of my car, and I did. Doug had never shown any particular fondness for that song when he was alive. Mark also had me drive him back there a few years later. We cleaned the snow off Doug's tombstone so we could read it. Douglas E. Meckley, 1974-2000. to 2000. I often wonder what Doug would have made of the 21st century. The last movies I was able to discuss with him were things like Pulp Fiction and Fight Club. The next time I visited Mark, his wife had left him and taken their son. Earlier in the year, Mark had been concentrating sleeplessly for days on end to keep skies full of demons he claimed he was battling at bay and out of their house as he argued with demons and then said that he discovered one day that it was him talking to himself the whole time. No, duh. One of the saddest ironies I know is how brethren parents can alienate themselves from their families while believing they are protecting said family from spiritual evil and harm when in fact they are themselves the source of much of that bad stuff. In the case of Mark, my visiting him this time 
was definitely contingent on him absolutely not drinking. I wasn't visiting him to try to preach at him, talk sense to him, or help him at all. I just missed him. We'd tried this before several times, promises that he'd been and would remain sober, only to arrive and find him a wreck. It's horrible for Mark when he sobers up. When he stops drinking, he has grand mal seizures. One time he nearly bit his tongue clean off. I feel terrible for him, but I can't deal with all of that. I won't deal with all of that. Sometimes people use your love and concern as a door into manipulating you, all too often, in fact. When I arrived in rural Pennsylvania this time, in the middle of the night, and sat down in a battered leather easy chair in a room that was wall-to-wall books, the first thing Mark did was aggressively plunk a tall can of Guinness in front of me and open it for me to drink. The message was clear. He was drinking, and so would I be. We'd put up with 20 years of increasingly insane alcoholic derangement from various Pennsylvania ex-brethren folks by this time. I'd refused to give the Nepean elders any dirt on Mark, even to try to keep from getting kicked out myself, and I'd been kicked out, at least partly for being friends with Mark and his family, and not helping Wim Van Hofwigen and Carl Newton work together to crucify him. The Vetter family had then angrily accused me of ratting Mark out anyway. It hadn't been me, though. It had been a French guy from Montreal named Jean. Sometimes, if you hang out with brethren people, they will inform on your habits and living quarters and conditions to the brethren later. The elders in Nepean, after their last refusal to reinstate me visit with me, told everyone I had naked pictures of women up all over my apartment, when in fact it was a single poster of a fully clothed Mia Kirshner in the Crow 2, John Cleese from Monty Python doing his silly walk, and Jules and Vincent in Pulp Fiction wearing their black suits and pointing their guns. The elders had given me the third degree about Mark, and I'd given them nothing. At that point in time, there was little to tell. Doug was still alive, the drinking wasn't as obvious, and certainly wasn't on the radar of the Department of Justice in Pennsylvania. They all still had their driver's licenses. They were all still bread-breaking members, albeit in dubious standing. But this visit was about 15 years after that. A lot of whiskey under the bridge. Smashed cars, lost licenses, and jail. Once Bill stopped drinking, my association with people like Mark was one of the things Bill couldn't deal with in hanging out with me. Mark is just too f***ing crazy, were Bill's exact words, and he sure wasn't wrong. So there, in the darkened house in Pennsylvania, leaving the can of Guinness untouched and saying nothing, I got up and I left. It was a long drive there and a long drive back in the darkness with a visit of just under five minutes in the middle. I've never seen Mark again. I have no plan to. The last I heard, he was living down there with a brilliant middle-aged woman I used to know who found him through my writing, and having been drawn like a moth to the flame of whatever it was that draws women to brilliant, talented, charming, deranged men, despite the swathes of wreckage they tend to end up leaving across the countryside. I can't watch Mark's life any more than I would have wanted to watch Doug's death. I'd rather spend my evenings alone. It had been my brethren goal to prove to myself, and by extension my parents and the meeting, that no, my enjoying life and what they thought of as worldly entertainment and I tended to think of as art a bit, in moderation, wouldn't mean the ruination of everything and everyone associated with it and me after all. Mark and company seemed to have set out to prove them right on every count. I mean, I want to say that there's no reason for any of this self-destruction happening. None. But I also want to say that if you claim to speak for God and Christian decency, and you continually predict God-enacted devastation and doom to young people who dare go to the movies, smoke cigarettes, and drink beer, 
saying, The Lord is speaking, in messages imprinted on their hearts from birth, I think this can become self-fulfilling, mind-warping, and make them fear they are cursed with your predictions, and make them enact chaos and destruction on themselves. But I don't really know. I am deeply troubled by the idea, though. It sure isn't just the Plymouth Brethren, either. I know Roman Catholics, Sikhs, Muslims, and Jews who raised in what we now terribly tactfully call high-demand groups, in those kinds of families and communities, all end up in more or less the same position as the rest of us. I stood one evening, waiting to cross the street with the long hair forbidden and the beard discouraged for Plymouth Brethren men, wearing the black clothes I tell people were white when I put them on that morning, standing beside my friend Peter's wife, Germel, she with the very short hair and men's clothes forbidden to seek women, and I thought about our liberty to choose to do whatever we wanted and how it often seems to end up feeling most free, most satisfying, to simply do either exactly what other people want or exactly what they don't want us to do. Speaking of that, I was supervising a class for a colleague this year at school, and one angry young girl bitterly, loudly blamed society for how teenage girls feel bad most of the time, just as she had been trained to do. She was bringing complaints, but no ideas or perspective. I could tell she talked this way all the time, without really thinking, or considering accountability, or planning for change. So I asked her to tell me more of her thoughts. As she was just parroting ideas, rather than thinking, she didn't have any more to give, so she just said, You know, men. I said, Me? And she didn't know what to respond. The class laughed. I think they were getting a bit tired of her daily ranting. I told the listening class and her, Society? Making you feel bad? Wanting you to behave and look a certain way? Society? Yes. And you know what makes that complicated? You are society. Society isn't just straight white men like me. It's all of you. And you're also doing that to yourselves and others right now, like you do every day. All kinds of people hurt all kinds of people. In that, there's equity, diversity, representation. Far too weighty thoughts, I'm sure, to dump on 14-year-olds who've been trained to blame people who look like me for their own very ordinary adolescent roller coaster of emotions inflamed by social media. To view 2021 as a time in which no social progress has been made whatsoever since the beginning of human history anywhere in the world. To view rural, forested Canada as the most sexist and hatefully racist place in the whole world, down through history and particularly right now. The one location on this earth where black men are most likely to get shot by police daily and women almost certain to get raped hourly and get paid 25 cents less than the men for equal work done that hour. Lanark County, Ontario, Canada. The global epicenter of rape culture. Ground zero for racism. Because this girl knew. Oh yes, her phone had told her. Just like the Plymouth Brethren had told us, her phone alike warned her of the dangers of this wicked evil world, a place where it wasn't safe to enjoy, well, much of anything. Safer to just stand close with your enlightened, informed, awake community and avoid hearing the thoughts and feelings of anyone with unorthodox doctrine and remember to boycott entertainment and entertainers because they're defiling, insist upon very carefully chosen language and wag your finger sternly, prophesying the imminent end of the world due to climate change. Surely is end times. The Lord is speaking. Something about that worldview seems very familiar to me with my brethren upbringing. It's D-I-E, diversity, inclusivity, equity, instead of J-O-Y, Jesus first, others next, yourself last, being presented as the proper, happy, selfless way to live. But still, there's something elitistly, humorphobically anti-joy about it. 
a whiff of the Pharisee, using paranoia about the state of the world to try to get people's ear. Different saints who've written different epistles about how to put on shows of piety for everyone looking on, obviously. Different social signals to indicate one is something other than just a normal everyday person and in fact is a specially enlightened one. No need to make things better, just a need to claim to know better than normal folks. This never felt new and unfamiliar to me when it started. Quite the opposite, it seems ancient to me. How can we inform the world that we aren't normal folks but are in fact especially special, aware, selfless, serving a greater good beyond our own interests? How can we remind the world that we are the chosen people? How can we signal that we are not to be mistaken for usual? The only difference is that this is now generally done by the younger to the older, where I'm used to seeing it enacted the other way around. At least in the meeting, there was redemption, salvation on offer to save us from our fallen, sisful old natures. If we asked for it, we might be forgiven. Not so here and now. Here, for all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of equity. All our whitenesses are as filthy rags. All the damnation is here for people like me and none of the Jesus. Thing is, payback isn't progress. And the internet sure doesn't attract our attention, inundate us and keep us interested using our outrage at the endless instances of human brokenness and misery it keeps us doom-scrolling through, does it? It doesn't just say, about to put that phone down? Wait, here's something really evil that someone just did. I wrote this song a few years before Doug's death because I'd been watching Twin Peaks and thought about that lure to self-harm and life destruction. Wanted to spit in the eye of that imagined evil figure personifying my own depression. Something that seemed to want me to hurt myself and die. The song was Defiance. To be clear, I am talking about purposefully, creatively personifying, imagining and visualizing my depression and the possibility of evil intent that exists beyond myself as well. I do not claim to have knowledge of the occult or demons or anything like that, but that's what depression has often felt like, so I'm thinking about it in that way, similar to how people imagine they are fighting or battling cancer, like it's a monster or foreign army in their body or something. I've never seen demons or ghosts or UFOs or anything, Bigfoot, Slenderman, the Jersey Devil, or any of that, but I imagine things in my head, often to deal with, figure out, and communicate what it's like to live in it. I imagine those nasty pink things as the reality of depression being with me every step of the way, waiting for me to slip up and slide down into it. For this song, though, I imagine something bigger, the nasty pink thing's boss, something behind all of it. Even the basic concept of momentum, the idea that things resist their movement being acted upon or altered, explains the weight I was dragging when I tried to deviate from brethren expectations and lifestyle restraints. Now I was imagining churches having guardian devils as well as angels, the angels existing to handle messages, the devils imposing odd ultimatums and requirements into what could otherwise be a very free community, helping dredge up people's oddest, repressed dark urges, their unconfronted shadows, to poison the well, to toss a wrench in the gears. I was raised to believe in literal, unclean spirits the way some people are raised to believe in the patriarchy and systemic racism. And I think in some sense, especially in the sense of social structures and attitudes and ideologies, all of those things are theoretically real, though I dispute the idea that if you look for it, every single conversation has a discernible devil or systemic racism component looking over your shoulder. So I'm agnostic about taking it that far. I fear we may project expecting to see a thing, so we're certain to see it, whether it's there or not, which it may well be. I believe in the possibility of those things, but I don't go around believing I'm fending them off, thinking and talking about them all the time, viewing every mundane, possibly joyful interaction in terms of them either. 
In fact, I've found that doing so does not help when I'm talking to gay, trans, indigenous, Asian, or black people, atheists or fundamentalist Christians either. I try to find common ground, not emphasize the other of each other all the live long day. There is a time and a place to talk about it, to speak out against it, and to not worry about it for an evening at the movies. I do know that people are different. Go into any random old room with a bunch of people in it, and some of the people are giving everything they have to suppress nervousness, anxiety, hyperactivity, impulses, and the blurtings out of odd things. It's like they tend to naturally spin at higher RPMs and have more emotional energy than they know what to do with. They pace around, fiddle with things, and talk and laugh as loudly as little children. Some other people, like me, are at the other end of the spectrum. We are barely spinning at any RPMs at all and have barely enough emotional energy to keep us on our feet and responding sensibly to conversation. We slump and mutter and don't respond well and give muted emotional responses. We don't do a good job of mirroring enthusiasm. A lot of people are more in the middle than those two extremes. So I don't know if there are unclean spirits bothering us who left and or were driven out of our birth cultures. But I do know there's depression I know there's self-destruction. I know people hurt each other and themselves, and some people end up dead. Is there any agenda outside that person, spiritual or societal, sexual or racial, that wants some people to get hurt or benefits in some way from it? Maybe so. I don't know for certain, but I'm open to the idea. At the end of the second Peter album, our plucky protagonist is tired of depression of feeling between everything, of feeling like it's not okay to be who he is, of being punished for seeking God in his own way. So he asks rhetorically, how long has he been enduring this tiresome nonsense exactly? Feels like he's got to look it in the eye again, and once again, stare it down. Amusingly, the scary figure representing murder and destruction in Twin Peaks is named Bob. The signature music for Twin Peaks has some finger-snapping jazz. So I wanted to make a Twin Peaksy little intro to go with a song that's not really in that style. The sort of stuff that plays on the show to let you know that something creepy might be going on. Maybe something in the woods. Though I don't really do jazz, I had a go at something that would allude to the Twin Peaks music and I used it as an intro to the song. I worked up a rhythm with boron, a snare drum with brushes, and finger snaps. I put in the frog chirping that means night in my audio editing vocabulary. And the call of loons, which I hear at my window at night pretty much whenever the water's not frozen. I needed an open, ringing, jazzy kind of guitar work I don't normally do. Originally, I tried to play some of my muffled, flabby high school trumpet. And decided I wanted something else. David Lynch soundtrack music often uses saxophone, but I no longer knew Adam, his time in our band having not ended terribly well, to say the least. This is not Adam Fogo that I'm talking about, who was far too good a bass player to ever be the bass player in a band of ours. For this podcast, I decided to edit in some of this Adam's random saxophone sounds. Adam played this for me on an entirely different song in an entirely different tempo and key. It was 
Who Are You Anyway in its original form with a drum loop. I mixed it in at the start, in with the fake keyboard sax I had science teacher Tyler, who had played piano in our band, do for me on the same evening we did the piano for Promises God's Country with my gear hauled up into Tyler's apartment. This is Tyler the teacher who plays piano, not Tyler who's not a teacher, but whose brother is a teacher who plays everything else. Then, for this podcast, I decided to go ahead and put some of that bad trumpet back in with the keyboard sax too. The core song itself is just typical me stuff. Some songs you keep around because of how it feels to sing them. This is one of those songs. It had most of the same instrumentation as the Twin Peaks style intro, with less jazz to it and more of what I usually do. Because this song is about not giving up, despite being tempted to, I included my best go at laid-back, melancholy 50s doo-wop backing harmonies, literally singing Give Up over and over again. Suppose by the end of the song, it's the tormenting depression figure who is being encouraged to give up. I put in my usual acoustic mixed with a distorted electric sound, but with a tremolo on said electric, raked, and with a bit of guitar neck bending to add depths of bottomless sorrow into the chords. I did put in some lead guitar, which ended up sounding a bit like a Nashville player playing through the edges rig. And here it is. Thank you. 
this ice You can do nothing and I can't go nowhere I don't wanna talk and I'm sick of your lies How long will we stay? And how long will we stay here? Is that the kind of look that you give to Song